This is Fintech Cappuccino, your Saturday morning podcast with a pinch of espresso on the why and how of Fintech. The show is hosted by Brian van Wachem, CEO of RedSnap, and I'm Connie Dorstein, founding partner of Bankify. Hey, Brian. Um, Brian, yeah, you also read that Gaston Alsons uh, recently left as the CFO of Molly. He's now happy to talk to us, really, you know, about fintech, his role, what he liked, what he learned. Uh, the, the Gaston, the intellectual, that transformed into a successful entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Well, there are actually uh, not too many fintech unicorns in the Netherlands, so yes, I would love to talk to him. Okay, well, great. So I'm going to call him. Let's open the mic. He's, but be aware, he's more of a thinker, really, than a talker and certainly not a boaster uh, so oh. get ready for some profound and well digested comments and opinions um, all right well sure let's go okay off we go pain and gain of fintech bye Morning. Why did you choose this music? Well, th- thank you, Connie. Thanks for having me here. Uh, well, this uh, music I, r- I like really a lot, actually. It is very upbeat. It's very energetic. It's, it's a great way to start your um, your Saturday morning. I also like that it's really it's it's a blend of various music styles. So um, it combines a lot in one. And uh, from a more philosophical point of view, what I like is that it has the same beat, the same drum roll from the beginning to the end. And it's like a company, like the same strategy, focus, and then everyone does his own thing during the song. And that makes a beautiful composition. Okay. Well, thanks for uh, for sharing. Uh, hey. And um, what do you normally do, actually, on a Saturday morning? On Saturday morning, uh, um, I do stuff to clear my head, basically, after a busy week. So uh, do a little bit in the garden. I'm not a, not a gardener. I'm not a green finger person, but I like to just uh, take the boys out and do some stuff in the garden. I like running and sometimes I um, uh, put my shoes on and uh, run in the Naardemeer, the beautiful nature area here and uh, take a bigger round of uh, 10 plus kilometers to um, to clear my head again. Yeah, that's uh, actually brilliant idea. And I hear two, two young boys. Yeah, 11 and 15. Ah, and, very uh, nice. They need to get rid of their energy as well. and. Uh, they tend to um, um, they tend to sit behind a screen and do all kind of stuff there. So you need some attention to get them out. So so do they run with you actually? They don't run with me. No, <laughs> the oldest one is a is is an active water polo player. So uh, and the younger one is a tennis player. So I only can get them out in the garden and uh, do some stuff there. But um, after if I don't watch them carefully, they sneak inside again. So uh, yeah, take some attention behind the screens. Yeah, I've had to say my my son is um, he's not following me on the sports uh, field. So. Uh, he he does his own thing. Well, boys and fathers, totally different topic, different podcast. Gaston Ausems is an anything payments man with a career spanning commercial banking, consultancy, entrepreneurship, launching SEPA at the Dutch Central Bank and FinTech through his CEO tenure at Molly over the last seven years. Molly, for those who don't know it, is a pan-European PSP serving over 90,000 SMEs and corporate customers. Mid-2020, Molly raised 90 million euros through a TVC-led Series B, lifting the company into the 1 billion valuation unicorn range. Having scaled the growth of the company and working intensively with regulators, it is now time to hand over the baton. Molly's enigmatic founder, Adrian Moll, will continue to be able to tap into Gaston's experience as he will remain a committed and advising shareholder. 
Gaston, welcome. So before we dive in, um, how did you personally look back on those seven years and how did it feel to leave at such a peak? Well, those seven years, actually they were almost eight years, um, were really a great experience for me. I mean, I, I've been working in payments for very long, but I never really um, was able to grow a company like, uh, like I did. So it was a, it was a great experience uh, building a company from around 8,000 merchants to around uh, 90,000 and from 12 people to uh, close to 300. Um, you learn a lot. You learn a lot from building a business uh, from HR to sales to marketing to compliance, um, everything I saw. So I think it was it was really an amazing learning experience. And um, we had a really amazing culture at Molly. So uh, I was very close to a lot of people that I've that have been with Molly for uh, for many, many years. So within the restrictions that are there, uh, we were able to, uh, or actually they were able to, um, to organize a party for me, but I could only invite 30 people out of the 300. So actu actually the, the, the task was put upon me to um, select out of the 300 mollies the 30 people that could be present at my um, farewell party. That was a horrible thing to do, actually, because uh, I felt like I had some form of relationship with everyone. Yeah. And um, then it feels really unjust to just take people off the list. Because yeah. I would like them all to be there and to say goodbye in person. So it was a, it was very great that this farewell party could take place, but it was... Uh, difficult under the circumstances, yeah. absolutely. Probably in a later time frame, it hopefully they will say goodbye properly to you, right? Definitely, I will, I will just keep contact with them and I'll, I'll meet them one form or the other because uh, as you know, the payment world is a small world as well, yeah. so you always meet people again. It's a very small world, this is where we first met. Just hooking on to your first point, you, you sort of covered everything you said, from HR to sales to growth to organization to compliance. Very briefly before we dive into the next topic, but what bit did you enjoy the most? Um, well, I think that also comes back in the, in, in, in the rest of the conversation. Probably. I'm really a content person, so I really like products. I like development. I like uh, defining the customer proposition, talking to clients and just um, really defining uh, your market position and what you bring to the market. So that's, that's what it, I enjoy most. Okay. And for the other topics, get good people on board. They come, they come with the job. Now, we'll talk about that more in that later then. I'm referring to timing, uh, um, uh, Gaston. You did indeed leave at a very true peak. Uh, you, you, and you know what it's like. Everybody suddenly talks about unicorn and accomplishing unicorn status is something, you know, many of the fintechs and our listeners will admire you for and, and also envy you for. But the point is, how can you prefer, prepare for such a stage uh, properly and because obviously with that new status, new expectations and new responsibilities come. I know you're leaving, but you, knowing you, you will have thought about that. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, a couple of things. I mean, f first of all, I, I left uh, Molly when it was a unicorn, but my decision to leave was like uh, much, much earlier. And uh, actually the decision to raise a Series B came after I already resigned at Molly and my uh, my departure was already planned. So this unicorn was sort of a, a bonus uh, on my um, on my tenure at Molly uh, without really having planned for that. Always modest. <laughs> Well, we, we, really, we never really planned, obviously, to be a unicorn because that's, that's not the way it works. We just always try to be uh, um, the best uh, payment provider for the mid-market in Europe. And what you've been seeing for the past 
year. I mean, we, as Molly, we always saw tremendous growth because we were serving a relatively underserved market in Europe and the rest of Europe, in, in, the rest, in Holland and the rest of Europe. So we already uh, saw uh, uh, nice growth figures. But in the first half of 2020, uh, the whole COVID um, um, pandemic uh, created tremendous growth for Molly. Uh, and you saw that the world was warped 10 years ahead in terms of uh, moving to online. And that growth uh, combined with the whole financial um, uh, circumstances with negative interest and um, a decline of many other businesses, you see that a lot of capital is is uh, flowing into the financial industry, especially the online uh, industry. I think those those two trends com combined uh, the enormous growth of Molly and the um, uh, the search for good investments created this unicorn valuation, and that comes with expectations because uh, even an investor that steps in at a unicorn valuation wants to step out at X times that unicorn valuation. So Molly has to keep on growing, and um, fortunately. Um, Devaluation has also been based on the plans that we had as Molly, and uh, you see that for the rest of Europe, especially the larger markets, the um, uh, segment that Molly is focusing on is still underserved. If you look at Germany, uh, 80, 90 million consumers, uh, France, uh, the UK, uh, markets significantly bigger than the markets where Molly is currently very successful. They're still quite underserved in, in, in the proposition that, that Molly has. So uh, easy to integrate uh, one contract, one point of course. So there's still tremendous growth opportunity, but yeah, there is a lot of competition as well. And it's, um, it's not that easy to make those to make those uh, expectations reality. But, but, but talking about growth, um, I read somewhere that, that in the recent COVID times that Molly was onboarding over 1500 clients a day, is correct? That's correct, yeah. And yeah. and and, well, how on earth did you do that? In you know, in terms of KYC, uh, I mean, um, banks can only dream of this. Yeah. How did you how how did you manage this? This was this was a, a major issue for us. It was not um, we when COVID started at, as Molly, we were confronted with a lot of challenges all of a sudden that we never saw before. Uh, we had uh, enormous credit exposure all of a sudden on merchants that previously turned out to be um, low risk, like we had 12, 1300 gyms in our books, which had to be closed and no one knew for how long. So um, they were just, they kept on debiting their clients and we, we had no clue whether clients uh, at a certain moment would just start um, charging that back. Um, we thought we were quite scalable on the KYC front because being in the mid-market, you're used to uh, onboarding a lot of merchants, but our average merchant's onboarding was between two and 400 a day or something. So 1500 a day was something that we couldn't really manage. And uh, we were not sure how long this peak was going to last. So before we actually uh, knew it, we had a backlog of around 5000 merchants who were heavily complaining on social media as well. So that was quite a, uh, an issue. So how do we deal with that? Uh, people and process more mainly. So just getting more people on board. We found uh, experienced people also from other companies who could help us with the onboarding. We had uh, weekend sessions where the whole company was helping with the onboarding, um, but also on the process side. In, in the end, I mean, we, a lot of the uh, onboarding at Molly is, is automated. So we look at the, uh, the UBOs, we'll, we check all the company data. But at the end, there's always a, a person looking at a merchant because you have to look at their side. What are they actually selling? Are those prices actually realistic for what they're selling? Is it really true? 
So um, what we did actually is that we, um, we tried to assess a merchant really early on in the process so that we could focus our resources basically on the merchants that really deserved it. So um, merchants from countries that we didn't focus on who were um, registering at Molly uh, during those times, we just immediately declined. Um, merchants from uh, low risk, we could approve automatically for low risk methods and only look at them once they did five or six transactions because... In the mid-market where Molly's active, you see that I think 20, 30, sometimes even 40% of merchants that register never do a transaction because they had a good idea, but it didn't work out or whatever. So you have to really not spend any effort on merchants who are not doing anything or probably will not ever do anything, but you have to recognize them early in the process so that you can um, you can just let them be and first let them prove that they actually do something. But but that's that's people in process. Um, how about the technology you used? I mean, did you use anything about analytics, machine learning, bots, uh, something like that? Is there um, a technology angle on this one? Um, well, uh, yes and no. Uh, there's obviously a lot of technology being used for onboarding merchants. Um, um, but when you're confronted basically from one day to the other with the five, uh, five times the normal volumes, you cannot start using AI or, or ML or, or those kind of technologies because they, they require, apart from the development, a lot of time to, um, uh, they, they, you need to train them basically, you need to train the models. So we do use uh, machine learning for uh, for transaction monitoring and um, those kind of things, but that's after the onboarding already takes place. Um, and onboarding still is to a large extent always uh, a manual process uh, where in the end someone always has to look at it. So you you might be able to do that, but um, we're, we're not that far yet. And you have to interpret a lot of um, uh, vaguer, non if, uh, you have to interpret a lot of data, like, you know, being yeah, able contextual to... Contextual data. Yeah, even. automatically in, uh, interpret, for example, pictures that you see in a website. Are they actually bikes because this shop is selling bikes? <laughs> or is it something else? I mean, it's and it's and it, that's that's very complicated. And um, um, so we don't... We didn't use that there yeah. yet, so... Okay, well, and and, and uh, KYC obviously has a, a, a link to another sort of constant in your career, huh? central banks and regulation. KYC is a very much, uh, it's, it's a regulatory compliance thing. You went through this whole entire fintech regulation galore with Molly when BSD2 and GDPR came along. What was it like to be um, sort of a pioneer and then already like a robust scale-up going through this? What was the experience like? And what, what, uh, because remember, we have people listening uh, to our podcast who have you know small fintechs or whatever. What can they learn from that experience of yours? It, it's, I found it quite challenging, to be honest. Um, especially in a certain time frame, 2016, 17, we had PSD2, we had GDPR, we had uh, AMLD4, so the Anti-Money Laundering Directive, yeah. all coming into, um, into, 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 all going live basically at the same date. And um, I, I found that we got really little guidance. First of all, you see that all these regulations have been uh, developed in a silo in, uh, in Europe and they have all kinds of interactions for example on the privacy front where PSD2 you get data from accounts GDPR how do you deal with that and you see that no one thought about that that it comes together in certain industries yeah. 
Then you look at your own regulator in the Netherlands. Well, they were extremely slow with adopting PSD2. So you see competitors coming onto the, the Dutch and the Belgian market who have licenses for which our own regulator doesn't even accept an application yet. Um, you're dealing, <laughs> yeah, but it's the fact you're dealing with yeah. practices that you have no clue how they would work under the new regulation. For example, um, we had a lot of platforms also in the whole platform economy. They were all of a sudden uh, had to get a license, but it was not clear what kind of license, whether we could keep on serving no, them. No, because they're holding money on behalf of others. Yeah. Yeah. And what's so and it was very unclear because in the in the in the legislation it also said that the moment they give instructions on where the funds should go that's also considered to be sort of holding money so even if we would yeah. hold the money and they would so it, it requires a lot of interpretation and we were just not getting that from anyone so uh, if there is some advice that i can give it's that you just have to you have to take your own position in that. You have to be a little bit bold. You, you shouldn't look for the loopholes or you shouldn't stretch the regulation too much. You should be a little bit bold, say like, this is what we read. This is the way we interpret it. This is the way we implement it. Implement it. This is the risks that we see and this is the way that we mitigate them so that you always have a, a, a good story um, towards also supervisors later on in the, in the process because you will have discussions. But if you can justify what you have been doing and how you have mitigated the risks then uh, you can have a meaningful discussion and you will you will you can you can also shape uh, regulations there for yeah. example as molly we were quite bold in the beginning with our whole kyc that we said okay we just you know we do kyc in two steps we just first do a limited kyc on merchants that uh, and we only do the rest once they actually did transactions and we we pass funds on to them but we don't do that if we don't if they didn't do anything, because that saves, that was a lot of discussion. In the end, it became common practice, and it's even in the guidance of uh, the central bank right now yeah. for PSPs. Reverse law. It's yeah. It's just. I mean, yeah. You have to just find it out basically, and then um, in the beginning, it results in a lot of discussions. But later, they also realize how the world sometimes works, and that it's also uh, yeah. for not very efficient to onboard everyone completely. But it obviously helped that you knew how regulators and central bankers think and a lot of young people who dive into this go in probably with a slightly different view on it like this is a hassle or did you get a lot of help from the regulators you know all the famed sandboxes and promotional items um no not really um sandboxes were actually started uh, at a certain moment they became very popular because they also came from 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 the uk and all kind of other countries are doing that and also the netherlands was trying to position themselves as a as a, a fruitful ground for uh, for fintechs but we were it was made quite clear to us from an early start that sandboxes were not for established parties and we were ranked as an established party so uh, it was not like that we could get away with all kind of experiments that was really for companies without a license um, who uh, could try their product within a certain limit so it was it was not that useful for us to be completely <laughs> okay, honest. Okay, okay, okay. Okay, Gaston. Um, um, so a little bit maybe a heavy uh, topic for the Saturday morning. Um, but it's my, uh, it's, it's my project. And um, it's called fraud, right? Um, and we see an increase of payments fraud on the bank side. Um, do you have, as a PSP, do you see this too? And if yes, um, how do you combat this? Um, 
it's uh, it, 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 there's a lot to be said about fraud definitely uh, okay. it's, it's it's absolutely a topic for uh, for PSPs because we are uh, often we are the last in line and fraud is uh, fraud which happens on both the merchant side as well as on the consumer side is in the end if it's not solved it's often hitting the PSP um, yeah, we, we're continuously working on that. So, um, uh, yeah, as I said, we have merchant fraud. Uh, we, we could have that. Merchants uh, not selling what they say they're selling. Merchants uh, not delivering their goods. Uh, it's also not always clear if it's fraud. For example, a merchant who is selling stuff, but that's becoming too popular and he is not able to deliver in the end anymore. And is, um, is that then fraud or is that just um, uh, not being able to... Um, to manage a successful business. So um, uh, you have to monitor a lot. You have to monitor how many uh, consumers are calling us because they are complaining about goods not delivered. You have to monitor the um, uh, transaction volume that merchants are doing, whether it's going up or down very quickly. You have to work. But, but do you also have to uh, submit the uh, suspicious activity reports, those kind of things? Yes, but that's not f- that we don't call that fraud. That's more ah. the AML and CFT, uh, so the uh, anti-money laundering and the financing uh, of terrorism. Um, so we have specific um, um, uh, transaction monitoring tools for that. They use uh, machine learning. And there you have to, um, yeah, to identify suspicious patterns. Um, and you have we had we built our own engine there, and we had an automatic portal also where we uh, we submitted all those uh, suspicious activities. And are reports. you working with banks on that and this one? No, or, uh, no? no, we were not. Uh, no, we're not working with banks. Um, banks have their own initiative where they jointly um, set up um, a back office or an, an engine where they were. And I think that was is a very good initiative. You see basically that the industry and also the um, well, if you the fraudsters and the terrorists, um, uh, they are uh, smart, becoming smarter, well educated. They know how the banking system works. They know how PSPs works, and I I believe that they're even able to route transactions through an institution in such a way that that single institution can hardly detect whether it's uh, it's AML or not. So you can only do it on a national preferably European level, um, you have to go really over the institutions and look at the total yeah, matrix and, and, and network of transactions just going on. So I think even on a national level, I mean, it's an absolutely good initiative, but I think that even on a national level, it would not be enough to um, uh, to work on that, uh, that front. Okay, Gaston, let's jump forward and dive into what you already just said earlier on in the podcast you like most, a deep strategic thought and turning that into a plan. I mean, as a former colleague, I'm allowed to say that because I, I know you like to chew over things, but you also get into gear and it's not very often combined in one person. But let's take a look at the payment industry and I, the payments world. And I would say it's almost a red ocean of providers sky high valuations which sometimes in all fairness dazzle me as you know on the pure transaction side it seems to be a race to zero fees so what am i missing i mean is it all hope and expectations of future value add or is it going towards massive massive volumes and low cost how do you see this world evolving where's the action uh, an interesting question for a saturday morning actually um I- Thank you so much. <laughs> Another uh, coffee, uh, Gaston. <laughs> no, but I understand where you're coming from. It's um, because it's definitely not a, a winner-takes-all market. Um, I think that that, that I mean most valuations are mostly going to 
really the tech companies in payments. And you see that the PSPs and the other tech companies are only taking, I think, a very small portion of payments at this moment. There's still so much to go. If you look at uh, the, the basic invoice payments, that's still um, a multiple of what's going online now. Yeah. There's the platform economy is still on the rise. Um, there are a lot of macroeconomic trends also where um, purchase of goods is replaced by paper use. And paper use will, like if you if you rent your bike, your scooter, your, uh, I mean, we had at Molly, we have clients who rent out headphones. Uh, everything can be rented, uh, furniture. Um, so that then, then a one-time payment for five years is replaced by a, a monthly payment on, on, on many things. The death of direct debit. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. But there's that, um, the, the, the IoT, which is, uh, um, which is coming up, where, where not only consumers, but a multiple of the consumers in, um, in, in terms of uh, machines will start initiating payments. And um, there's still so much there. Um, uh, and the use of payment data is still uh, largely untapped as well. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, what I, I mean, I've been I've been around quite a while actually, and um, uh, what is uh, worrying me in terms of expectation is the pace by which um, uh, the economy, but also uh, payment behavior, is actually changing. So, I think the growth is there, the the, the market is eventually there, uh, but it will take a lot of time before um, consumers, uh, companies, uh, will all switch and will adopt new business models. So. Those valuations will probably come through, but it might take a lot longer than... A lot longer uh, than we thought. Yeah. And, and what about, uh, you know, in, in our old worlds that we know well, you know, PSP, uh, banks in particular sort of wrap everything around the payment type. We still have lots of institutions who focus on that. So in old world terms, we see credit moving into debit. Uh, we see MasterCard buying Vocalink. We see uh, taking uh, Instant globally. We see Visa vying for plate. First of all, what do you think of that? But also, do you think that those very, very large organizations will be able to deliver the innovation that you need if you separate the payment experience from the type? Yeah, that's, 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 yeah it's, it's very... It's Another very, coffee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it feels a little bit like if you can beat them, join them also by, uh, by large companies. I think, I think that a lot of the innovation is also in the UX. That's, that's where really... Where, I mean, if you look at... I was just talking about how, how slow the adoption is of payment behavior. And, and at, on the same note, you see how fast, for example, Apple Pay has been um, been uh, adopted. So, and what is Apple Pay actually? It, it doesn't, in terms of processing, in terms of payment value chain, doesn't change too much. It's really the adoption of another UX and the use of tokenization. Um, and I think there is a lot of uh, um, uh, a lot of growth and a lot of innovation. And if you look at, for example, Plate and the whole open banking, um, you're really looking for for, for modes and and and, and um, innovations that really can tap into that in a very easy manner. At this moment, it's, ma it's mainly credit who is allowing the the Uber experience, the um, the the payments in the background, and that will have to be. Uh, ported also to open banking, but it's it's not easy. I mean, you see that on debit, there's a completely different authorization um, flow. Uh, it cannot be done offline, um, so we're not there yet. And you also, I'm also a little bit disappointed to be honest in all the innovations that come out of open banking at this moment. Yeah, we do the standardization there. 
So, uh, no, I think good strategic moves by MasterCard and Visa. But it will uh, will take a while before um, um, that really takes over. Gaston, other, you know, I'm just listening to you. And um, uh, one thing puzzles me, actually, um, how so many different roles fit into uh, one person sitting here in front of me. Um, a central banker, at all intents, a civil servant role in a massive machine. Uh, a consultant, more of a loner. And at Molly, you were a hunter, gamekeeper, and entrepreneur in one, right? So tell us, are you so multidimensional or schizophrenic? <laughs> <laughs> Another coffee. <laughs> no, I think no. I, I think as I said before, I mean, it's uh, I'm re- I'm really fascinated by content, by propositions, and and at, I, I was I mean I was sort of a central banker, but I, w- I worked there as a consultant, so I was not on the supervision side. I was working there on SEPA and um, helping companies uh, make that transition towards these new products. So it's really diving into processes of companies and helping them make that transition. And that's also what I did as a, as a consultant. And when I came to Molly, it was also about building up the um, the proposition and 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 the, the product. So it's it's really it's everything is revolved around payments and around the content of payments in either a consultant or an entrepreneurial uh, capacity. So um, it's not that um, that different probably between all the roles, yeah. but but I do think that that having served in all those roles, uh, it's it's fascinating to see all these perspectives and to yeah. uh, so that 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 is very helpful when you yeah. run Molly. It's helpful to have seen how a central bank operates and uh, how you should keep them in the loop and make sure that they're never surprised what you're doing and. Uh, that helps a lot uh, uh, yeah. going forward. Well, that sounds a bit like a lesson. Keep them in the loop and let them know what you're doing. No, uh, absolutely, absolutely. It's a very good one, actually. Yeah. 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 yeah, because it's not like thus, uh, them versus us, but, you know, let's try and stay in touch and sh- show yeah, they also, how we move forward. They try to get a, keep a grasp on what's happening, uh, yeah. where the innovation is going, uh, what trends uh, are there. So, so, you know, better call them too often than... Uh, wait until they they drop by and they make all kind of observations uh. yeah so obviously i'm going to, in a sneaky way get trying to going to try to find out what's next for you in store because uh, if i listen very carefully the content bit the consultant thing looking at things from different perspectives is what you really really like you're probably not going to tell me but you know maybe maybe yes you will lift the veil I can uh, well. I, th- I think, as I already said, I think that that uh, UX in payments is is very interesting. So that's not so much the content of payments, but it's because I think that the, the, obviously you can make all kind of uh, improvements in the whole uh, processing and whole value chain. But it's it becomes very marginal uh, because you, we have instant and we have working systems there, and um, it's also a very slow process. So I think the UX is a very important thing. The form factor, moving away from plastic uh, codes, uh, tokens, those kind of things. That's a very fascinating uh, thing. And as far as my next um, uh, challenge is concerned, I um, I will actually move a little bit away from payments. Uh, I will uh, start working um, for a smaller company uh, who's in the IoT space. So, uh, but linking IoT to payments. So ah. it's it's not regulated and it's not supervised, but it's extremely innovative and um, it's more in the payment generating business than in the payment business itself.
forward to hear what that company is. Yes, I was thinking, I was thinking of digital currencies, maybe or something like that. But okay, for people wanting to lecture themselves and others on anything digital, money and identity, and IoT, I suggest you follow Gaston closely and see where he ends up next. Curious which music weekend favorites Gaston brought with him? Check them out on www.fintechcappuccino.com/gastonawesomes. Gaston, thank you for joining us here at the very virtual kitchen table in the Fintech Cappuccino podcast. And thank you to our listeners for joining us again this morning. Don't want to miss another cup? Subscribe to our podcast via Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you like to listen to your podcast. And please give us a like, a review, so many more fintech cappuccino lovers can find us. Please join us again on Saturday morning at 9. We'll have the coffee ready just the way you like it. Have a good weekend. Thank you very much, Gaston. Thank you very much, Gaston.